Appreciate it so very much. I enjoy good music. I guess I enjoy it more because I don't don't play anything, don't sing anything. I disturb the public worship when I do. So I just refrain from such and until I can uh, kind of blend in with somebody else and then things smooth out okay. But I enjoy good music. Glad to have you here this morning and appreciate your presence with us to worship the Lord. And I trust that's what you're here for, to worship the Lord and to learn of him and to realize that this book that he has given us, this word is, you know, it's not just like coming to a social club on Sunday morning just so we can meet all our friends and then go home feeling good. But he's given us something for hope for the future and far greater than what we could ever enjoy or have in this life. And that's what we've been talking about in this sermon here that he's been preaching to us. And, of course, we've been reading it, and he's been preaching it to us uh, 2,000 years after it was given. And it's still fresh and just amazing to me as I've studied it. I guess, did we mention Harris and Shirley or should be on the road on their way to Florida, so... Remember them. I'm going to miss them, and I know Janet will too. She helps out in the nursery there. They're a delight, and just they say we could have all the fellowship meals we wanted during February. <laughs> They'll be gone for the whole month and be back sometime around the 1st of March. And Ken and Nancy should be back around the 1st of March as well, somewhere around there. Ken left for Trinidad on Thursday then over to St. Vincent on Saturday and should start teaching class tomorrow morning at, Saint, at the Bible school in St. Vincent. And he'll be there for a week, and then he'll be back to Trinidad. Of course, that's, that's kind of the hub down there, you know. Everything's in and out of Trinidad. So he'll go back over there, then over to Guyana, where he'll be going somewhere, as I understand it, deep in the interior. Uh, that's in Guyana. That's in the jungle, pretty much. And uh, spent about three weeks with a with a pastor there, uh, helping him. So do remember them. Okay, we want to look at Matthew chapter seven again. We're still working our way through. We're approaching the end. And in some ways, we're hitting a summarization already from what the Lord's been been teaching us. And and so in this study that we've encountered here in this sermon concerning the kingdom of the heavens. That's always to be remembered. That's the subject at hand. He's teaching about the kingdom of the heavens. And he taught us that this kingdom demands a citizenry that's been transformed and changed. It's not according to the citizens of this world. But those who have been transformed by the power of God's Holy Spirit. And this, this transformation then changes a person inside out. Begins in the heart. And it results, if he's empowered by the Holy Spirit, in a, in a righteous life that exceeds every other life that could possibly be lived. Now it all starts, John says, when we're born from above. When we all experience the new birth. That is the ultimate prerequisite. That we must be born from above. A new birth. A transformation that is inward. And it's wrought by God's Holy Spirit, verse 6 says of John chapter 3, born of water and of the Spirit. And here in chapter 7, in verse 12, he says, Therefore all things whatsoever you would do. Now, those all things, you, know, you have to ask yourself, what is the all things and where, where is he going with this? These heavenly things. Well, the Lord, look, look at, um, go back, turn over to John chapter 3. I see I brought my ruler in from home, didn't mean to do that. 
Put that in my pocket. John chapter 3. And if you look at, at these verses, you see in verse 3, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In verse 6, uh, or verse 5 rather, he says, uh, except a man be born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So we see this inward transformation that, that takes place. And then if you look at verse 12, he says, If I have told you earthly things and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? So you see that to understand the heavenly things, you have to have a heavenly birth. It has to come first from above before you're going to, you'll be able to comprehend those heavenly things. Then, if you'll look at verses 19 and 20, regarding the gospel, he says, This is the condemnation that the light is come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. So we find that those who love darkness, their deeds are called evil deeds in 19 and 20. But notice in verse 21, he says, But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest. Why? Because they're righteous deeds. That they are wrought in God. They come from him. So if we look back then at chapter 7 of Matthew and verse 12. Well, boy, before I do that, let's go over to chapter 13 of Matthew. Regarding these that do the evil deeds... You'll notice in this Matthew 13 parable, and that's a kingdom parable, kingdom of the heavens parable. He says, Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto, or it has become like, a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. And so the servants said, or the slaves of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, or Lord, didst not master, didst not thou sow good seed in the field? From whence then hath it tares? And he said unto them, An enemy hath done this. The slaves said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? And of course he said, No, just leave them there. Unless you root up the wheat with them, let both grow together until the harvest and the time of harvest, in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, gather ye together first the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. The point I'm getting at here regarding the evil in chapter three, we have the tares. We have disciples who are followers of the Lord Jesus, taught in the Sermon on the Mount. And they are to produce works or deeds of righteousness that are excelling or exceeding or abounding above that of the scribes and the Pharisees. So my point is, is there, there was a standard of righteousness in Israel that everyone looked to, the scribes and the Pharisees. Then along comes Jesus and teaching his sermon here and said, No, for those who want to participate in the kingdom of the heavens, there is a higher standard of righteousness that must be attained. And if you don't attain to it, there's no entering in the kingdom. That's the hard line. But yet on, on the other hand, he tells us here that in with the wheat... The disciple who is seeking to follow the Lord and enter that kingdom, tares have been sown alongside by the enemy. But what I'm getting at here is that he says there, 
when, in verse 26 of chapter 13, he says, when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, okay, that means the wheat grew to full maturity. It brought forth fruit. Now, of course, in the parable, prior to this one, in the soil, we saw that those that were sown in good soil brought forth an abundance of fruit, some 30, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. So when the fruit has matured, that is, when that seed planted, when that disciple has begun to bring forth fruit, he says, then appeared the tares also. And what I'm trying to get at here is that when we are seeking to follow the Lord, when we are seeking to be his disciple, when we have forsaken all and taken up his cross, when we have sought to give up our life and lose it so that we might gain it, at that point, the enemy's tares are going to appear mixed in with the fruit bearers. Now, I'm bringing all this back to the Sermon on the Mount here to simply show that we live in a very tough world. And to live this kind of life that the Lord Jesus is talking about is not an easy life. But it also tells us that there are those who have the ability to live a quality life, just like the scribes and the Pharisees, a certain standard of righteousness that in some respects and in many respects, I should say, is indistinguishable from you and I. That is to say, they're honorable people, they're obedient to the law, you know, they do what's right, they teach their children right, uh, you know, they, they do the good things. Upright, respectable citizens, as it were. But we saw, as we've been looking at chapter 7 here, and especially last week in this prayer, which is a movement to summarize what the Lord's been teaching here, that we are to ask, seek, and knock. And we saw from Luke's account that the good things spoken of here in chapter 7 he calls the Holy Spirit. And so we're suggesting here that there is a spirit-driven message here that demands a spirit-filled life to live this kind of life. And that is the only distinction often that there is between the wheat and the tares. The tares are indistinguishable till the fruit has become fully Mature. And of course, it's only the Lord Himself who will separate the wheat from the tares at the end of the age. And He's going to burn up the chaff, and He's going to take the good wheat, and He says He will gather it into His barn. Now, back in. Well, let's go. Let's just. Look at these previous verses here we've looked at in chapter 7 about judging not and so on and, and um, this relationship with our brother, looking at the beam in his eye when we've got a moat in, our, or, uh, a, a moat in his eye and we've got a beam in our own, and our relationship to our father that is wrought in, in prayer in the asking, the seeking, and the knocking and so on, this continuous asking and seeking and knocking, which is to teach us that our Heavenly Father cares about our needs and what, what we desire. And at the top of that list, the Holy Spirit. And I'm boiling all that down to verse 12 to say the word, therefore. Because at first glance, you would wonder, why does this verse 
end up where it is. It doesn't seem to belong anywhere. And if you have an, an outline Bible, some included in verse, verses 1 through 12, some keep it as a separate verse altogether, like in my Bible. It's, it's a totally separate verse, like it's unconnected. But the word therefore is a word that tells us there is a connection. It's translated so, S-O, or but, or then, or now. And it indicates a, a direct connection with what has gone on before. The question is, is what about before? Is it just a few previous verses? Or would it go back several chapters? Or maybe back to the very beginning of the message, the sermon? And it seems to me like it's going back to cover the entire sermon, the entire message. That what he is boiling this down to, when he says, Therefore, all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them, for this is the law and the prophets. That he's bring, bringing it to a summation. You remember how we've talked earlier about devices in, in literature that writers of Old and New Testament both, but I'm talking primarily here of New Testament, using things to try to connect. Because you remember there are no... There are no commas, no ver, uh, verse numbers, no marks of any kind to tell us where we are when we're reading a, a Greek manuscript. It's just a solid column of just letters all scrunched together, no spaces, nothing. But one of the devices used would be to begin a subject, a topic, and you would mention it, and then when you came to the end to tie it all together... It would be over here again at the end. I think we have something like that here because you remember back in chapter 5, Jesus said in verse 17, Think not, I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I'm not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And now he is telling this us in this verse in what we commonly know as the golden rule which we say it as do unto others as you would have them do unto you but he summarizes this principle this rule of love as the law and the prophets I think what he's trying to tell us here is I'm trying to pull all this teaching that I've given you up to this point together and say what I have had to say is all in the law and the prophets. And I'm teaching you nothing different than what has not been revealed prior to this. Now, of course, part of what had, had been the problem was with the scribes, the Pharisees, and others that they had degenerated into a lack of heart, and yet they still kept the law. They only kept it to the letter apart from any heart involvement. Now, having said all that, look at Matthew chapter 19. We'll just look at a few passages here and then we're going to go to the Old Testament and look at the law and the prophets and to see where did the Lord teach these things. In Matthew chapter 19 and verse 19, of course, we're talking here about the rich young ruler. Fascinating passage. I, I, lo I love this passage here. But you'll notice in verse 19, uh, he says there, Honor thy father and thy mother, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Now, of course, this was in answer to the young man's question, the young ruler's question, how he may have eternal life. And the Lord was telling him here what he must do. And it's interesting to me that he says, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And the young man said, All these things have I kept from my youth up. Well, he must have been some kind of a guy. 
if he could love his neighbor as himself from the time he was a young guy all the way up to whatever age he was when he asked the Lord this question. Obviously several years. Turn with me before we make any more comments about that. Just turn over to chapter 22 and verse 36. And you'll notice another one came to the Lord and asked him this question. Master, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. On these two commandments. Number one is to love God. Number two is to love your neighbor. And the word love there is the same word. It's agape in both. So there's no distinction. Equally, love God. Love your neighbor. Love God with your heart, with your soul, and your mind, and with all my, thy might or strength. You know, this, this is a, an inward thing. But to love your neighbor as yourself is undoubtedly going to require deeds and doing something to actually love your neighbor. Now, having said that, turn over to Romans chapter 13. In Romans chapter 13, of course, we have the same, the same expression repeated. We're looking at those right now. And beginning with um, verse 9, should begin with verse 8, because verse 8 is really intimately tied in with this. He says, Owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. For this, thou shalt, love, or thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended or summed up in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And I think if we look at this just even for a moment, we would recognize then that all of these thou shalt nots are easily done if they're governed by love. If we are practicing loving our neighbor as we love ourselves, and we obviously do, then we really wouldn't even need a list of commandments like this, the Ten Commandments as we call them, or these that, that Paul has listed here. These could just be stricken away and removed because we're operating on that higher principle that the Lord Jesus has been talking about, that principle of love. Now, having said that again, turn over to Galatians chapter 5. <coughs> again, Paul talking about this issue of walking in the Spirit as opposed to walking in the flesh. And notice what he says in verse 13. He says, For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty, only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh. In other words, you've been called to liberty, freedom apart from the law. Those commandments that Paul talked about back in Romans 13. You've been called to freedom from those things. Only don't use that freedom, he says, as an occasion to the flesh. But rather, he says, by love, serve. And that word serve there, by the way, is serve as a slave, one another. We are to serve as slaves, one another. So, if we are going to stand over here under the law then I'm bound by the law to the letter. But Paul says we've been set free from that, apart from that. I'm out here, out from under the law. Now I'm under the law of love. 
The law of loving my brother and serving my brother as a slave is to be my guide in life and to direct me in my decisions in life and how I treat others, how I act and conduct myself as a citizen of this world. Why? Because I'm truly a citizen of heaven. This is where my marching orders come from, my master in heaven. Now, having said that, well, you could go on and say in verse 14, for all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Now, later on, we'll find, of course, the reference to that in the Old Testament. But notice in verse 15, but he said, if you bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. Well, I'm over here, out from under the law. I'm not bound by the, the principles that the law has over here, the legal, the legal system. But if I'm over here and I'm not operating by the law of love, and I'm biting and devouring, and you know we're just at each other, he says, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. Verse 16, this I say then, walk in the spirit. That's all Jesus was really trying to get us to in the Sermon on the Mount. That if we walk according to the principles and, and things that he has spoken of, according to the law of love, which is walking in the spirit, then he says, you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And then, of course, he tells us what the lusts of the flesh are and so on. And then if you go down to verse 25, he says, let, If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. Obviously, then, those kinds of things are not the kind of spirit that should characterize a group like this gathered here today. That's not the kind of relationships that believers are to have. Now, one more. James chapter 2 and verse 8. And, of course, James, we said, so much resembles the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. But then you might say, well, it's no wonder he was there. He heard the Lord teach these things. And in verse 8, he says, If you fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, you do well. Now, it would be good, and I was so tempted, it was so tempting to want to go in and look at this, all the scriptures that talk about doing well. Because there are many of them that tell us, if we do this, you do well. And then to continue that on just one step farther, if we do well, then when we stand before the Lord at his judgment seat, he's then going to be able to say, well, well done, thou good and faithful slave. Enter into the joy. And you'll notice here, he says, if you fulfill the royal law, you know, the word there refers to the kingly law. It's the regal law. It's the law that has to do with the kingdom. The kingdom that James is speaking of, the one that the Lord Jesus is speaking of. If we fulfill that regal, kingly, royal law, which is loving our neighbor as ourselves, he says, you do well. And I might even say, he could have written in there, and your righteousness then will exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. So this whole message then is one that is governed by this whole principle. It's like the fulcrum, it, it, it's, it's, or, or it's the hub. It's around which everything else flows in the, in the gospel message of love. Now, we've got to go back to... Oh, let's go to, well, let's go back. Now, now, he says, when he sums it all up, he says, this is the law and the prophets. Doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. 
Now, I realize that that's a, that's a major order to stop in a situation and ask yourself each time, well, how would I want to be treated if I was on the other end here? And once you answer that, then that's your answer as to how you're to treat them. Leviticus chapter 19 is where we're going to go first. Of course, Leviticus is all about the giving of the law and the guidelines that, that Israel had for living under the Lord as their master by covenant. They agreed to do so. And he tells them in verse 18 here, Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am Lord. Love your neighbor as yourself. You know, these laws would have been so easy to keep for Israel had they obeyed this law. But, of course, we know they didn't. Now I want to look at several passages from the prophets that speak about this same kind of principle. First, I want us to go to Isaiah chapter 1. He doesn't always use the word love in these passages, and that's, that's not the point. The point is, is that doing righteousness from the heart, that's what the prophets railed against Israel because they were not doing that from the heart. Verse 16, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 16. Now, of course, there are, there are several negatives we could look at in this passage, but look at the positives here. He says, wash you, make you clean, put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do well. Seek judgment, relieve the oppressed, judge the fatherless, plead for the widow. What did James also tell us concerning the fatherless and the widow? To visit them? This was righteousness? Look over to, um, well, let's go. Now, there are so many verses we could look at. We're going to jump around here just a little bit. Look at Zephaniah. Chapter 2, Zephaniah, yeah, i got to find it myself here, there we go, and verse 3. Now, of course, the prophets were exhorting the people to turn to the Lord, to repent of their sins. And that's all what Zephaniah is doing here. And he says in verse 3, Seek ye the Lord, all ye meek of the earth, which have wrought his judgment. Seek righteousness, seek meekness. It may be ye shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. They were to seek after that. Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4. A significant passage. Because it answers a question for us in regarding the topic that we're talking about. Look at verse 3. He says, who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? Now, this is David, a prophet. David, the psalmist here, is asking the question, who is it that shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? That's, that's poetic language for asking, what man is there of Israel or what man is there, period, who will ever be able to ascend into the Lord's presence? And might even be implying here with hill the idea of mountain or kingdom. And he says, who shall stand in his holy place? Who is it that can do that or is going to be able to do that? 
Well, notice what he says in verse 4. He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, that is to emptiness or worthlessness, nor sworn deceitfully. And if you'll turn back just a couple pages, maybe three, to Psalm 15, you find there, in essence, the same thing being taught there. This is David once again. And David says, Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? Now, again, we've stated that that's a euphemistic expression for his kingdom. And he tells him here in verse 2 and 3 and 4 and 5, the entire psalm is given over to talking about the quality of man, the character of the man who will be able to do this. Now, I just came across one more, maybe. I'm not sure if I can find it. I will just skip. I can. I'll skip on. Uh, <coughs> I better pass that one by. That's too long. Jeremiah chapter 4. Now, Jeremiah, these first several chapters of Jeremiah are just amazing. I could stay here a long time. I'm not even sure where to begin. I guess I'll start with chapter 4 here. I was looking before that. Chapter 4, verse verse, uh, 2. Verse 1, he says, if thou wilt return, O Israel. In verse 2, he says, thou shalt swear the Lord liveth in truth, in judgment, and in righteousness. Now, notice what he says there. Israel, if Jeremiah is saying, if you will do this, if you will swear the Lord liveth. Now, you know that's a common expression in the Old Testament, especially, as the Lord lives. Or the King James says, as the Lord liveth. He is telling them here, if you will say that in righteousness, in truth, in judgment, he says, and the nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him shall they glory. Now, look over at chapter 5. I could just cross the page in my Bible and look at chapter 5 and verse 2. He's talking about these who are living in rejection of the Lord. They're rebelling. They're living in sin. They're not obedient to the Lord. And he says in verse 2, And though they say the Lord liveth, surely they swear falsely. So the point being here is, is that many of these believers were going around saying all the good, nice words that we as Christians use. Praise the Lord and, you know, hallelujah and thank the Lord for this and, you know, all these kinds of things. And yet their heart wasn't in it. And he says they swear falsely. But he's encouraging them over here in chapter 4, say the Lord lives, but say it in truth. Say it in righteousness. Say it with justice on your heart. And then he goes on in verse 4. He says, circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskin of your heart, ye men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury come forth. In other words, change. And then look over at chapter 9. Well, let's just walk through here. I think I want to point out a couple more here. He says... um, He says in chapter 5, verse 4, look at verse 4. He says, Therefore I said, Surely these are poor, they are foolish, for they know not the way of the Lord, nor the judgment of their God. Well, wouldn't that describe present-day conditions? They don't know the Lord, and they don't know the judgment that awaits them. But in verse 5 he says, I will get me unto the great men, and will speak unto them. For they have known the way of the Lord and the judgment of their God, 
But these, these have altogether broken the yoke and burst the bonds, that is, of restraint. And, of course, the whole point there is, is that judgment awaits them. And I could go on with all of the other, I mean, there's so many things there. I'm going to turn over to chapter 7 and verse 5. Notice what he says here. If, he says, you thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if ye thoroughly or truly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, oh, that's loving your neighbor, if you oppress not the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, and shed not innocent blood in this place, neither walk after other gods to your hurt or to your harm, he says, then will I cause you to dwell in this place. And then if you'll turn to um, well, boy, I want to read a lot here. Let's go to chapter nine, and we'll just try to bring this part to an end here. He says in chapter nine, verse twenty-three. Thus saith the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. Well, there's three kinds of people he's talking about who glory in certain things. Their wisdom, their might or their power, or their wealth. But in verse 24, he says, Let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me. Now, that word knoweth is the word hesed. Hesed, oftentimes translated, I say hesed. Now, if you were doing Hebrew, you'd have to put that in there, which I have trouble doing, so I'm not going to do it. <laughs> but it, it's, it's talking about those who have an intimate relationship with the Lord. So when he says, he that understandeth and knoweth me, he's talking about that one who is in a, very close, intimate relationship with the Lord. That I am the Lord which exercise loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. You know, all of these things that we're reading here, Isaiah, Jeremiah, David, the Psalms, all of these are what the Lord is enumerating for us in the Sermon on the Mount. The origin point... For a disciple, a seeker of this kingdom of the heavens, starts right here with the heart. It's the condition in which we are in as we walk before him day by day. I just want to go on some more. Let's go to chapter 22, Jeremiah, I think. Oh, yeah. Verse 13, Jeremiah 22, verse 13 says, Woe unto him that builds his house by unrighteousness and his chambers by wrong, that uses his neighbor's service without wages and gives him not for his work. Thus that saith, I will build me a wide house and large chambers and cutteth him out windows and it is sealed with cedar and painted with vermilion. Watch verse 15. Shalt thou reign because thou closest thyself in cedar? Did not thy father eat and drink and do judgment and justice, and then it was well with him? There we see that same principle. To do judgment and justice, and it was well with him. He judged the cause of the poor and needy, then it was well with him. Was not this to know me? saith the Lord. But verse 17 says, But thine eye and thine heart are not but for thy covetousness, and to shed innocent blood, and for oppression, and for violence to do it. He said, this is, this is what your father did, and it was well with him, but your heart, somewhere else. 
It's to do basically the opposite. One more passage, 2 Kings chapter 23. Now, not in this series here, by the way. 2 Kings chapter 23. We're not quite there yet. Now, this is a passage concerning Josiah, and we don't really have time to go into it except to say we know that Josiah was a righteous king, and he did a lot of good for Judah and so on. And notice verse 25, it says, And like unto him was there no king before him that turned to the Lord, how? With all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might. Boy, does that sound familiar? (laughs) Heart, soul, and strength, or mind. According to all the law of Moses, neither after him arose there any like him. So what what do we say about what the Lord is telling us here in chapter 7 when he says, Whatsoever you would have men to do to you, Do ye even so to them, for this is the law and the prophets, is simply to say that the principles enumerated in the law, though they were very strict and carefully to be obeyed laws, were governed by an even higher law. A law of love that had its heart turned toward the Lord. And I don't even have anywhere near enough time to begin to talk about the scriptures in the Old Testament, especially if you look up Deuteronomy and just get a concordance and look up the word love in Deuteronomy and how many times over and over and over that word is used in Deuteronomy. To love the Lord thy God. But to bring it back to where we are as a seeker of the Lord's kingdom and a desirous of wanting to be a part of that kingdom rule when he comes, to be a viable citizen of that kingdom. Look over at 1 Corinthians 13 about, again, this principle of love. A well-known chapter, but it's really a chapter talking about conduct in the church. And he's, the very first verse, he t- tells us, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. I mean, really, Paul is putting this down on the level where we can relate to it. Because if I had a little, if I had a little bell up here, and I'm, you know, I'm making nice, nice little pretty sound, you know, it's a mint. If I'm tingling a little bell here, clanging a cymbal, he says, if you're doing all these things as a believer and you don't have love. He said, that's, that's all it is. You're just going ding, ding, ding. And that's it. Nothing more than that. He says, real love, he goes on to talk about some of those things. Look at verse uh, 3. He says, though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not love, it profits me nothing. We know people. You, I, I don't know that you know them personally. I can't say that I know any today personally but there are many who their year in giving means writing checks to charity they don't have any heart in it they do it because of whatever tax benefits because they are members of the citizenry of the city and they want to be in good standing if you're running for public office today what's one of the first things they want to look at they want to see what you've done for charitable giving It's in the paper. It's there for everybody to see. And Paul's just simply telling us again, if your heart's not in that, it's worthless. 
You haven't done a thing. Love suffers long. It's kind. It doesn't have envy. It doesn't vaunt itself. That is, it's not prideful or arrogant. It's not puffed up. And it does not behave itself unseemly. Doesn't seek its own. It's not easily provoked. Thinks no evil. Rejoices not in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things. Boy, I wish, you know, obviously there's several messages right here. All of these things come home to bear on us as to how we live. And why is it important? Because it is the principle that we are to live our life by as a believer, and it has a direct connection to our participation in the Lord's coming kingdom. How we do it now is going to be borne out as to how we do it then. One other passage we'll take time to look at today and turn back to Romans chapter 13. In Romans, I think it's Romans 13. Did I get it right? Hmm. Yeah, I did. Go back to verse 8. Romans 13 verse 8 says, Owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth, loveth another hath fulfilled the law for this thou shalt not commit adultery and so on and false we've already looked at this you've done all these things it's all wrapped up in this thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself love works no ill to his neighbor therefore love is the fulfilling of the law and you if you want to even go on to the next verse, he says, awake out of sleep. It's high time, he says, to awake out of sleep. If we've become careless or lackadaisical in our love for one another, then he said, it's time to wake up right now. Awake out of sleep. Why? Because our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night's far spent. And we know that if Paul said that in his day, what about us? How much nearer are we are to the Lord's coming? This, I've already said it, uh, has been so convicting to me, preaching through this whole sermon. But I pray that it will take root in your heart as it has mine and that it will affect how we deal with people, not just here, but when we walk out the doors of this this assembly and we leave and part here today. How are we going to talk to those that we work with and in our homes and so on? Let's pray. Father, let your spirit speak to us today, I pray. May you visit with us in love and compassion and concern for your people that we might do righteously, that we might walk in a humble and holy manner before you and before our fellow man, that we would comprehend what it means to be a slave of Jesus Christ and walk in obedience to him, our master. For it's in his name we pray these things. Amen.